Welcome to another episode of the WBT. Your host this time around is Adrian Bonnenberger, me, a co-editor with Rathbearing Tree, and David James, another co-editor. Our guest is Gary Craig Powell, musician, author of Stoning the Devil, author of a, an unpublished novel of Italian Gabrielle D'Annunzio, and a columnist with Late Last Night Books. We've read Leo Tolstoy's Haji Murad, published posthumously in the beginning of the 20th century, one of the great writer's most powerful works and his last. David or Gary, would you like to give us a quick five-minute summary of the book? Yeah, I'll, I'll have a go. So it's a very simple story in essence, although there are a number of um, little interesting and complex subplots which uh, make, make it uh, feel a lot a lot denser uh, than you would typically expect for a work this length. Um, I would describe it as a novella. It's about 100 pages. And um, the main story is to do with this uh, Haji Murat, um, who is a Chechen, I think. And uh, he's, he's fighting the Russians in about, I think, I think the events take place in about 1851. He has quarreled with the, the most important Chechen leader, a guy called Shamil, who has captured his family. Um, he's got the holding his family hostage. And Shamil is telling all, all the Chechens that they mustn't shelter Haji Murat on, on pain of death. So uh, Haji Murat decides to go over to the Russians basically because he thinks it's his, his best shot at freeing his family. He, he knows that he's an important leader uh, and he, he feels that the Russians will be uh, happy to get him. And he aims to persuade them either to ransom or rescue his family. He does go over to the Russians. He approaches a guy called uh, Prince Vorontsov, who's only a colonel, but he's, a, he's a, a, a very important aristocrat whose father is uh, the governor in, I, I think it's Tbilisi. We get quite a lot of Russian politics here. Some, some people uh, are, are in favor of accepting Haji Murat. Some are, are, are not so happy about it for various political reasons. And so we, we get a lot of politics there, but the, a lot of the tension comes from uh, Haji Murat trying to persuade the Russians and particularly Prince Vorontsov's uh, father to uh, take action against um, Shamil. He, he wants to lead a, a Russian army against uh, Shamil, but the, the prince never, never gets round to it, basically. He keep, keeps putting him off. Um, and in the end, um, how can I put this? Haji Murat is, the Russians don't completely trust him. They feel that uh, he is, um, he is using them. And so he's sort of semi, he's semi a prisoner. He's always got a, a, an escort and he, he, he doesn't have completely uh, free movement. Eventually, he decides to break away. He decides to see, see if he can rescue 
his family uh, him, himself. And on the way, he has to fight to get away. He's got Cossack uh, escorts. He kills a number of them, but he's pursued by lots and lots of soldiers who catch up with him in a, a sort of very exciting climax. And he, he's a bit unlucky because his, uh, his, his men are on horseback and they end up going through marshy ground and sort of getting bogged down and, and trapped, basically. So they're, they're forced to fight against the, literally hundreds of men. And I think there are five of them or something. So it's a, it's a, it's a foregone conclusion what happens. So that's the basic plot. There are several subplots as well. First of all, thank you for the summary. That's terrific. I think the subplots illuminate various themes that Tolstoy wants to explore. And I was, I was talking with my wife about this yesterday, sort of as I was put, trying to put down my thoughts on paper about the story. And one of the first things that occurred to me is how different this is from most Western literature. I feel that a lot of the literature of England or France or the United States, everything needs to serve a purpose that flows back into the main piece in a way that often feels forced. You feel like, you know, every character, every device needs to serve its purpose within the main plot. And it doesn't feel that way at all with the subplots. It feels like they're their own little universes. And while they are a part of the story in the same way that life is a part of the story, an interaction with a cashier during your day is a part of your daily, you know, the, the story of your daily life, that doesn't need to have any special additional significance. And yet it is sort of seamlessly incorporated into the whole of the story, which I think is characteristic of, if not Russian literature, maybe, you know, Eastern European and Russian literature. I don't know what you both think about that. Definitely it's characteristic of Tolstoy. I don't know if I could speak for a whole group of literature, but this is his thing is to be uh, universal. And, you know, he's painting a huge canvas and it's like he's directing this big dance with all these movements and none of it is ever forced. And what I love about it, you know, even though this is only about a hundred pages or so, and it's a novella, I mean, it still feels in a way on the scale of a war and peace or of some epic uh, story because we just, he's able to weave in so many different parts from these lowly soldiers who die to the, uh, you know, the, the central character who's uh, a Muslim from around the Chechnya area fighting against the Christian Russians. And we get the whole chain of command of the Russians all the way up to the czar himself and all of his shortcomings. And then we go back to all the minor characters around Haji Murad and Tolstoy just, you know, paints this canvas in such a masterful way that I've never encountered in any other writer. And uh, I think, you know, even the length of this, it's quite short. It's really one of the best works of fiction I've ever read. I think it's a great place for anybody to start to read Tolstoy. Maybe anyone who was, you know, scared of a bigger work like War and Peace or Anna Karenina. I mean, this one is in quality is just as good. I agree. Yeah. It begins with a subplot, which is the framing device, right? The discovery of the thistle, which, you know, is, is such a succinct way to describe the story at large, or, or at least sort of prepare your expectations for the story. The, the, the nameless narrator who I, I don't know if that's supposed to be Tolstoy um, I read that he this this the, the story was not intended for publication. He wanted to finish it before his death, 
and he did so, but it wasn't intended for an audience. So it's possible that this is, you know, this is him. If it's not, it doesn't really matter. This nameless narrator is, is walking through the fields, uh, putting together a bouquet, which is described as a nosegay. Uh, and he sees this beautiful thistle. And um, I, I just want to read very, very briefly from the text that I had. Thinking to pick this thistle and put it in the center of my nosegay, I climbed down into the ditch, and after driving away a velvety bumblebee that had penetrated deep into one of the flowers and had there fallen sweetly asleep, I set to work to pluck the flower. But this proved a very difficult task. Not only did the stalk prick on every side, even though the handkerchief I wrapped around my hand, but it was so tough that I had to struggle with it for nearly five minutes, breaking the fibers one by one. And when I had at last plucked it, the stalk was all frayed, and the flower itself no longer seemed so fresh and beautiful. Moreover, owing to a coarseness and stiffness, it did not seem in place among the delicate blossoms of my nosegay. I threw it away, feeling sorry to have vainly destroyed a flower that looked beautiful in its proper place. Actually, after this, he sort of sees another thistle uh, that has been destroyed uh, or, or seriously injured in a field, but it's the only thing that survived in this field that's been tilled by this modern machine. I can't think of many ways in which a story is framed that skillfully and also in a way that's totally unrelated to the plot. I mean, the, the name that the narrator has for the thistle is a tartar, so one does have this... Um, idea that, you know, the, the tartar is going to be the theme of the story, but it's also so basically, it's not about war. The person is just sort of walking through fields, doing something totally unrelated to what the rest of the story is going to be like. And there at the end of that little digression, you have everything you need to understand what the, the essential theme of the story is going to be, which will be something of beauty in a particular context being wrecked in an attempt to bring it into another context. Yeah, and resisting very bravely, yeah. Right, and I think the we might be meant to think that the uh, the thistle is representing the uh, oppressed people resisting the Russian, uh, you know, imperialism. And we kind of get, most of the story is from the point of view of Haji Murad or from a sympathetic point of view of him who was an enemy of Russia or his people were historically. And so Tolstoy is a Russian writer, but not a Russian nationalist for sure, had his own agenda. So it, it kind of lays out some themes about the story coming into it of struggle and conflict and you know the destruction of beauty and of living things due to this conflict, which is waged by selfish and uh, horrible human beings which is kind of a running theme in a lot of Tolstoy, I think. To me, the most remarkable thing about the story really is the portrayal of, of Haji Murat as, as really a, a very admirable figure. It, although the guy has very obvious faults, um, you know, he, he can be cruel, he's not completely trustworthy, and, and yet everybody admires him, and the guy is always true to himself and in many ways he behaves much more as a much more as a gentleman and behaves with much more honor than most of the Russians um, so I, I think that's very remarkable for, for the uh, particularly for the time although it, it would be even now I think 
Yeah, and also historically, Haji Murad was a real character, of course, and this is all based completely on real events, even though yeah. some of it has been fictionalized. He was a well-known figure in his day, which is, you know, the early 1850s, and uh, he was part of a long-going war between Russia and the Caucasian Muslim tribes, like the Chechens, Dagestan, all those which are yeah. really still kind of going on today. Still. Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, even in the context of Tolstoy writing this book, it would have been a well-known personage, you know, historical character that the Russians had either captured or um, he went to them. So I think it is interesting that he's written from such a sympathetic point of view, even with some of his faults. Yeah, he's completely the protagonist and he's much more noble and dignified and uh, has better qualities than anybody else in the book, for sure. There are very few unsympathetic characters when they're being described in their own context. I would say the most unsympathetic portrayal, the two characters that are portrayed with the least sympathy are the Minister of War. Um, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he is the one, he's the aristocrat who sort of betrays Hajimurov. What is it again? I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but Chernyshov. Chernyshov. Okay. Yeah. So Chernyshov, who has only because he wants to gain an advantage over an aristocratic rival, wants to thwart Haji Murad's uh, suggestion. And then when he's presenting it to the Tsar or the Emperor, and then Emperor Nicholas himself, who is presented uh, extremely unfavorably, those two characters. Uh, Shamil, you know, you hear all of these terrible things about him, but when when you encounter him, the only time you encounter him in the text, which is when he's sort of dealing with his court and he's just come back from this, an expedition or a raid that didn't really achieve what he had hoped it would achieve. He's pretty, he seems like a pretty fair leader, you know, somebody who's kind of trying to lead his people against the Russians. And there's this, this inconvenience of Haji Murat, which is that Murad is, uh, you know, he acknowledges it, acknowledges it himself in his interior monologue. He's thinking about how the raid went and he's like, well, it didn't accomplish as much as it would have had Haji Murad been leading it, you know? So we've lost this, our group has lost this important thing. I, I feel that that fact, which is that Shamil himself isn't necessarily a bad character, is warped a bit by the, the, the importance that Murad places on his own family and his sense of honor. Uh, this isn't to say that Shamil is necessarily an honorable character. Obviously, he, you know, he's complicit in the the machinations of the Avars and the Chechen sort of politics. But I do think that like one of the reasons this this story succeeds as well as it does is that almost all of the characters are, are very fairly presented, flaws included. And so it's very difficult to, to truly dislike any of them with, I would say, I would argue the exception of uh, Chernyshov, the war minister, and Emperor Nicholas, who's a, a rapist and uh, a glutton and uh, shallow and vain and a fool. There's that guy Kirillov as well, the, um, that state minister from, is it, uh, was he from, from Tiflis, the, the, the guy who, who's pays... Haji Morat, and then remember Haji Morat slaps the guy around the head, and the guy says, "You can't do that to me. I'm a colonel." And 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 Haji Morat says, "Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's fine." 
Yeah. And yeah, Haji Murad is universally respected by both sides. You know, the Russians, it's in their interest also to paint him as a, a very valiant fighter and very important. And, oh, he's come over to us. So now we're going to win the war. But also to his enemies on both sides, you know, they're afraid of him. Yeah, this uh, Shamil, he's, a, he's an imam. So he's a religious leader, but also the political leader, leader of this regional government which is, I guess it's in modern day Georgia, where most of this is set. He and um, Haji Murad have sort of this blood feud. And they definitely hate each other, but Murad agrees to work for him just to fight the Russians. And, but his time was always limited. And so at a certain point, Shamil decides to choose someone else to replace him. And so Murad has to go over to the Russians. But yeah, there's a lot of internal politics for both sides. We see a lot of the Russian internal politics where various military officers and ministers are fighting for favor and trying to badmouth the other guy. And that goes all the way to the top, like you said, with uh, the czar, uh, Nicholas, who was really, you know, Tolstoy, I think, just does a, a great job here. It's fantastic where, you know, in War and Peace, we have kind of a similar thing where like the, the narrative builds up to a certain point we have the actual point of view of the czar and then also of Napoleon. And here he does the same thing with Emperor Nicholas. We kind of build up through the ranks, through some ministers and we reach the czar and we get to, uh, to hear his point of view. And uh, it's not good. You know, everything about it is a negative portrayal. He's a pathetic, you know, incompetent, reactionary. So it's kind of fitting into Tolstoy's agenda here a little bit too, I think. To go back for a moment to the, uh, there was a point uh, Gary made earlier, I think, about about political machinations. Oh, I'm sorry, no, this is a point that you made, David, about like the way that Haji Murad is being presented, the kind of propaganda around around his presentation to the Russians, and when news of Haji Murad's capture is brought in to Prince. Voronsov, who is who will be become essentially Haji Murad's patron. He's the one who says, yes, this is a good idea. Let's let him lead, or, or at least is taking good care of him. Uh, his son takes Murad in, and then Prince Voronsov himself, who is in his 70s and played a role against in, in the campaign against Napoleon, is sort of uh, he holds this court and all of the aristocrats and generals are around around him and they're trying to figure out what they're supposed to say. And he sets the tone, like when people are still trying to navigate that space, he's like, Haji Murad's a great, he's a great warrior. And then everybody's sort of tumbling over themselves to, to explain about how, just what a great person he is, but they're, they're waiting for Voronsov to, to, to make his proclamation. There's this great moment of humor uh, that maybe I can, I can read a little bit later, but um, I guess what I'm thinking now is how the, how the power of, Tsar Nicholas's description, it's, I think so often in satire, there's this um, desire to describe people badly. Like the first impulse is to say like, this man is, you know, vain and foolish and, you know, incompetent, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't feel quite as, as powerful as this does because Emperor Nicholas is simply described that way. And everybody's pretty fairly treated. So you feel that the narrator is going to be as fair as possible to the character. And when you get to Tsar Nicholas, and then the way that he is described is sort of like gluttonous and lustful 
and you know shallow and reactionary like you said david is it's it's so powerful because you realize that he almost alone among the rest of the figures is somebody who's been completely debased by his position there's yeah and that, i've got a quote here about it so one of his underlings is um talking about the the former campaign they had done in the area and it was against what the czar wanted and he had two different ideas in his mind and didn't even know what was going on basically but it says this approval of his strategic talents was particularly pleasant to nicholas because though he prided himself upon them at the bottom of his heart he knew that they did not really exist and he now desired to hear more detailed praise of himself it's like tolstoy alone knows what's at the bottom of the czar's heart that he lets on that he's a strategic genius but he secretly knows he's not he's just a pathetic idiot who inherited his throne and clearly not approved by Tolstoy. Another corollary of that is that um, uh, Tsar Nicholas want, wants a big offensive, doesn't he? And um, one thing which uh, Tolstoy does really well, I think, is that instead of just saying that it was brutal, you you get that fantastic scene where they go into uh, Haji Murat's Kunak's village, which is, you remember, the very first scene is, is where uh, Haji Murat is being sheltered by Sado, his Kunak, which means sort of, it's a sort of adopted brother. He's not, not a blood brother, but they act like brothers. And um, that guy's son, who we've already met, which again was uh, very well done, I think, because it's not some nameless boy. He's been killed by the Russians and he's been bayoneted in the back, you know, and that that really says everything about the brutality of the of the massacre that's taken place, doesn't it? Yeah, and Tolstoy, um, he does it so well throughout the whole book and really through all his books. You know, Tolstoy was a, uh, a, rat, a uh, an avowed pacifist, you know, convinced who actually fought in the Crimean War and uh, served in Sevastopol and wrote his first book about it. But yeah, through all his books, you know, even War and Peace, I mean, he comes on decidedly the side of peace, but you see it in all these examples. It just, he hits you over the head again and again with like the horrors of war, but he really shows you uh, how it destroys everything. And uh, through all the normal people, the peasants, the soldiers, and um, yeah, he, he does an amazing job with that. The killing of Sado's son is mirrored in the killing of the Russian soldier who's sort of a, a peasant, essentially a conscript, who has taken his brother's place. And that, what I would describe as a, as a digression from the main plot, is horrible. His death is portrayed as senseless because his commander, who's not described as a particularly bad guy, just wants to skirmish essentially. He decides he wants a skirmish. And so a couple of Russians are wounded and he's killed. And it's not clear that they do anything to the enemy, but he reports that they've killed a hundred Chechens, which seems, which is such a beautiful illustration of war. It's like, oh yes, this is a very meaningful operation that we did. They shot at some horsemen, the horsemen shot back and this guy gets killed more. He gets wounded. He gets shot in the stomach, but the operation 1851 doesn't go well and he ends up dying. Not clear that he would have died today, but he, he, he dies in that context. And it turns out that his family really kind of depended on him. And the older brother's a bit of a wastrel, and he had to leave 
his wife. The, the, the worst part of that to me is that the, 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 final, the final word on his life is that his wife is glad, to, is sad that he has died, but secretly happy because she has had two children with a sh- the shopkeeper that she's working for. And she, ne- she didn't want to have to explain that. And now she can kind of just marry the shopkeeper. And it's clear that his life is going to be forgotten, not even within a generation, but like with the death of his parents. Everybody else, he's an inconvenience. And he's a good soldier and he's kind of, you know, a good guy and a good worker. But that's what war does. He, he's a very good guy. Almost his last thought is that... He- He's glad that it's him that's dying and that his brother's been spared. It was a kind of amazingly noble thought to have when you're dying. Yeah, I made a note of this too. Peter Avdeyev, yeah, just a a random peasant, maybe not a complete serf, but yeah, Tolstoy devoted two whole chapters to this guy, the first half of the narrative to his stay in the hospital and the other men who were there and how he died. And then there was this false account that there, oh, there were a hundred Chechens killed as well, which was completely false and reminds us of some of our um, campaigns in the war on terror, maybe. You just make up a number. Then we get the next chapter that goes to his uh, village and his family and he's already died, but now we get to see his parents saved up and sent him a coin in the mail. And he never received it. I mean, it's a long two-chapter digression that's actually quite moving, powerful, has nothing at all to do with the main narrative. It's just incredible. I, I'm still not quite clear in my head. I mean, I've done a little bit of ancillary reading about this. Uh, you know, I, I, I have my own thoughts on the subject, but what what would you say the theme is of this story? Well, it I don't know if... It, off the top of my head, if there's a single theme, I think it's really interesting. It's uh, Tolstoy's last work, and it was published posthumously. And as I think Gary mentioned, or someone did, it maybe it wasn't even meant for publication. Although I'm, I'm not sure about that. Was, Tolstoy was one of the most famous guys in the world, and I mean, he knew his stuff was getting published one way or the other. But um, it's so different from the rest of his uh, his later works where he changed his style and his, his beliefs, really, sort of uh, during Anna Karenina. He became a much more radical, religious, sort of anarchist type of person with his own farm uh, retreat. And he kind of renounced some of his earlier works. And this one is uh, it's very interesting because it, it doesn't fit into that later work at all. It goes back to just an earlier action narrative of war although it's anti-war and uh, it's, it's kind of like a version of war and peace. So I'm not sure. It is kind of like a, a mini war of peace, isn't it? It's, I mean, ob- obviously war, war and the futility and brutality of war is, is one of the themes. I, I, I don't think it's the only one though. Um, it seems to me that Tolstoy is fascinated by the the essential integrity of Haji Murat, the the fact that he he never really compromises what he believes in, and he never pretends. He's never a hypocrite, you know, unlike most of the the Russians. And he has a kind of a, a, a simple faith as well, which I think 
Tolstoy respects, even though Tolstoy was not a Muslim, but we notice that um, uh, Haji Murat's always praying, for example, and even the, the night before he dies, he knows he's going to die. They, they can hear the other soldiers approaching and, and he still says namaz, you know, he still says the, uh, the, the evening prayer before getting a little bit of sleep and preparing to lose his life. Um, but there are, there are so many cases where his behavior contrasts with that of the Russians. For example, when he's staying with, um, now what's the name of the guy, uh, Major, Major Petrov. You remember he's staying with Major Petrov who, who, who lives uh, with this, uh, this woman, Maria Dmitrievna. And there's a, a, a young Russian officer uh, sharing the house with them too, Butler. And Butler is very attracted to her. And he sort of struggle, struggles with his conscience a bit. He feels he shouldn't have an affair with his uh, uh, fellow officer's wife. But eventually he does, he, he attempts to seduce her. But Haji Murat never does. You know, he's, he's really, his behavior is really true, truly honorable. It's I, impeccable, right? He's the only one, even though he's an enemy, perhaps. He's, he's the only character who is uh, truly noble. And uh, most of the Russians are not, for sure. Most of the Russians and many of the Chechens. And the Chechens seem to live by a code that is more, that is purer and more honorable, although terrible things happen as a result of that code. Maybe, maybe that's what's fair to say, because, of course, Shamil and Shamil's mentor, Hamz, Hamzad? Hamzad, yeah. Hamzad. They wipe out the royal family with which Haji Murad has been educated and reared. His mother was one of their wet nurses, or the, the royal wet nurse. Yeah, I keep coming back to the thistle thing, and I guess maybe my, maybe I'm not reading this. I'm I'm in, investing too much of my own ideas into the story and not stepping back sufficiently, and giving Tolstoy his authorial vision, which is why I'm, why it becomes a little bit confusing to me. But that sounds right. That he's, uh, this is like a meditation of of you know honor and codes of honor and the ways in which civilization necessarily corrupt that honor. Yeah, and I think it just in fitting with his entire project, which seems to be to show the universal human experience, which he does very well, as well as any author ever has. But just to show, you know, the whole spectrum of how humans act and to not really comment on it, but just to portray it. You know, this is what this character said and did. And we think, oh, that's good. And, but then he did this, and oh, but that's bad. And we get that for every type of character from any nationality or background or class. And he just always does that. He just paints this huge picture of a huge group of humans in real life, realistically acting this way. And uh, we make our own judgments. But it goes from the lowly serf to the czar and uh, people from any other country to Napoleon, to the people from Chechnya and, uh, it's all a universality of human experience, I think. Incidentally, you said correctly, David, that um, he, he doesn't comment a lot. The book is almost a kind of textbook example of uh, how to write fiction. It's really a, a lot of 
show not tell, isn't there? It's almost constant. And there is some exposition, but not all that much. It's really a lot of action. Something is always happening. And he, he occasionally allows himself to comment as when he comments that that Tsar Nicholas is is in, insane and dishonest. I, I I think, but but generally speaking, we just make up our minds because we see the characters in action. We can see whether they're contemptible or, or, or honourable. Yeah, and I think it's also very anti-war, like we've already mentioned, but. He he does comment on this uh, many times, like with the dying soldiers on both sides, or there's uh, an example I wrote down here from fairly early on. There was just a, a mention of some Russian general who had uh, who'd been killed in a, uh, an attack. And the other soldiers were talking about it. And there's this long paragraph that's a single sentence that I thought was quite striking. Though all of them, especially those who had been in action, knew and could not help knowing that in those days in the Caucasus, and in fact anywhere and at any time, such hand-to-hand -hand hacking, as is always imagined and described, never occurs. Or if the hacking with swords and bayonets ever does occur, it is only those who are running away that get hacked. That fiction of hand-to-hand -hand fighting endowed them with the calm pride and cheerfulness with which they say on the drums and drank and joked without troubling about death, which might overtake them at any moment as it had overtaken Slepsov, who's a general who was just hacked, uh, possibly for running away. And it's this long comment about soldiers who lie to themselves about the glory of battle, and they still use that to calm themselves, even though, even though they know it's a lie. It's just a brutal and a lot, often a cowardly act. There is one. So one of the things I wanted to read earlier, which might be appropriate now, is how. So there's the soldier level. That's it, the the soldier level of combat, which is described on both sides, and then there's the political level of battle. And Prince Vorontsov, so uh, Haji Murad's patron, when he sits down and holds court, there's this very amusing sort of misunderstanding when one of his generals uh, is attempting to pay praise to Haji Murad. And he does so by describing uh, a catastrophic defeat of Vorontsov's. And he, he keeps describing it as a rescue instead of like a victory. And, and he doesn't get the hint. So I'm, I'm just going to read this paragraph really quickly where finally he sort of talks his way into understanding the, the, the terrible trouble this general has gotten himself into. Having started on his favorite theme, the general recounted circumstantially how Haji Murad had so cleverly cut the detachment in two that if the rescue party had not arrived, he seemed to be particularly fond of repeating the word rescue. Not a man in the division would have escaped because he did not finish his story for Manyanya or Belyani, having understood what was happening, interrupted him by asking if he had found comfortable quarters in Tbilisi. The general, surprised, glanced at everybody all around and saw his aides-de-camp from the end of the table looking fixedly and significantly at him. And he suddenly understood. Without replying to the princess's question, he frowned, became silent, and began hurriedly swallowing the delicacy that lay on his plate, the appearance and taste of which both completely mystified him. Everybody felt uncomfortable, but the awkwardness of the situation was relieved by the Georgian prince, a very stupid man, but an extraordinarily refined and artful flatterer and courtier, 
who sat on the other side of Princess Forensova. Without seeming to have noticed anything, he began to relate how Haji Murad had carried off the widow of Ahmed Khan of Mektukli. It's fantastic. You know, <laughs> that one paragraph is just such a huge uh, statement on so many things. I like, I think right after this too, is when they get into this battle to who could praise Haji Murad the most. We're like, oh, he's a great guy. And now he's come over to us. And I think also there was a couple references throughout the book to Napoleon, which I thought was pretty interesting. And even one, maybe in that conversation, they referenced his name as if it was Marshal Murat of Napoleon, you know, of France in the Napoleonic Wars, who had the same name. And uh, I thought it was just an interesting reference there. Yeah, Tolstoy is no fan of Napoleon's, is he? He, he thought he was an idiot, basically. Yeah, Tolstoy, he's not a big Sorry. fan of a lot of those, uh, a lot of the guys, definitely Napoleon, but any czar for sure. Yeah. Right. Can I ask a question? Because um, it, it struck me that, and I'm not sure if, if, if all the people who listen to your podcast know this, but since you were both um, serving soldiers yourself, um, it, it struck me that you, you two probably read this kind of story in a different way from someone like like me who's never served at all and 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 I wonder how convincing you find the narrative as as a war narrative uh I find it quite convincing Tolstoy was also a veteran Crimean wars and yeah anti-war and so I feel a great affinity for him just because of that because it's similar to my own feelings. And, um, but it's hard to speak about the war experience of veterans and how they feel. Because Maybe if I speak for Adrian, we're a little bit similar in that we're different from most of our compatriots. I don't know, in some regards like that. Well, also another point of commonality is that David and I served together on a deployment and we're in fact neighbors in this small fort border of Pakistan. So you couldn't get a better overlap, even accounting for our different personalities and aesthetic interests. The certainly uh, the same. This is. I feel that you know the better the author, um, the more skillful the writer, the more common the response is to the stories. You can see what you want in the story, but the story is so clearly written by Tolstoy that I think a veteran, a non-veteran, uh, a pacifist. Uh, uh, what's the opposite of pacifist? Psycho, psychopath, warmonger, <laughs> warmonger would would probably all see. I, I don't mean to say that anybody who disagrees with the pacifist is a psychopath. I just mean to say the diametric opposite of a pacifist would probably be you know, somebody intent on murder. Um, yeah, w would get mostly the same thing out of it. The the I think the thing that David and I the interesting thing about being a junior officer is that you get to see things from the soldier's perspective, but you also get to go into rooms where political decisions are, are being made. And so you do get to see both of those things happen and you gain an appreciation for both. And so you know, the political, the mendacity, the egotism, the narcissism, the flattery, all of those things are very much as true at the battalion level as they are at the, the national level. And the essential optimism of soldiers and maybe even decency of their situation, relatively speaking, whether they're decent people or not, you know, the decency of their situation, which is that most of them have, have joined up to do something to, to better themselves in some way, shape or form. 
is true, which isn't to say, I don't mean to sort of valorize the, the common soldier. I think it is important to acknowledge that a person who's serving as a colonel and, you know, throwing people into a meat grinder is, is different from a soldier who is interested in, you know, going on a mission to kind of support uh, his or her comrades. There are different motivations at play. There are different power dynamics. But yeah, I, I found this, this is one of the best stories that I've ever read in my life. I don't see that changing in the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. Although I hope it does. Let's all hope that another Tolstoy emerges to tell important anti-war stories. Yeah, and I think, you know, another thing with the army in general is just there's a sense of this camaraderie, but there's a, a sense of a community between many different people who wouldn't ever be together for any other reason in close quarters for long periods of time, far from home, doing different things and other people do. So you get this uh, new type of community that emerges and yeah, there's levels of the the normal soldiers or enlisted men and the officers and the political machinations and lunacy that happens uh, there. And, uh, but, you know, that's something Tolstoy himself obviously participate in, but captures, I think, perfectly in this story and others. It's just this uh, universal experience of the military itself at all levels. You know, everybody in there is, is somebody who had a family, and his death was pointless, but this happened. And here's the idiot who ordered it to happen and didn't even think about it because he was thinking about an affair he had with a person who, you know, you get the entire spectrum of human experience, but you could condense it to just the military, for example, although it reaches other parts of society. And it doesn't get much better than this, I think. One other thing I could mention is that when uh, Adrian and I were actually neighbors in uh, a deployment in Afghanistan, in this case, it was it's actually the first time I read any Tolstoy. And, you know, I read mm. his, uh, his great novels and everything. And it was interesting, even at the time where I was trying to spend some of the extra time we had to read as much as possible. And, you know, it was interesting to still look around me and have a historical context for what we were doing. You know, we were here in Afghanistan and you know, I've still thought about it since then, but what were we doing there? There's parallels with these wars of the 19th century of the great game and Russian yeah. imperialism and all these things. It's like, you know, it's pretty similar in a lot of, um, in a lot of ways. Looking at it historically, we don't seem to have learned a great deal from that, from the history, it always seems to me. What's so astonishing to me about history, especially given the events of the 20th century, and I think most significantly the Holocaust and the dissolution of the USSR, the fall of the USSR, we have these two great and more or less, if you look at them in their context, unprecedented events in human history. And they were supposed to lead into, there's that famous quote by Fukuyama about the end of history, they were supposed to lead into some type of change, for better, for worse, some type of, I think for better, I think some type of change wherein certain types of actions became impermissible, actions that had been permissible in the past, ethnic cleansing uh, and genocide in the case of the Holocaust, and maybe empire building in the case of the USSR, at least as far as the narrative goes. I don't mean to put any kind of negative political valence there. I'll let other people do that if they want to. 
but here we are, and and yeah, and one of the great catastrophes of the twenty first century is, in spite of those beacons, in spite of the UN and our our best efforts to to change things, to say no, something like ethnic cleansing isn't isn't permissible. We see it in civilized countries to this day. You know, we see ethnic cleansing happening all the time in the twenty first century, and it's just so depressing and you know there are active the vision of some type of some type of global enforcement mechanism for criminal behavior on a national level is is gone at this point if there's a hope that remains for that it it is in the uncertain future it is not in the immediate present it's not like we are going toward a situation where a nation could reasonably be punished by a group of other nations outside the framework of war and that means that we're still living in the days of Haji Murat, we're still waiting for the great general to defect and some great political coup to happen so we can, you know, shame, humiliate, or over, overcome our enemies. Yeah, I think you're right there, Adrian. That's a, a pretty nice uh, idea. And keeping it to the context of this uh, novel, I think it was written at it, at least like a 50-year remove from the historical events. And in between... Uh, Russia's campaign in the Caucasus was going on, and it still is really today, but there was also an event called the Circassian Genocide. These people, they're mentioned in the novel of their dress, their uniform, the Circassians, which Haji Murad wore the shirt, and even if he was an Avar, they're just different groups of these Turkic uh, people of the, the mountains of the Caucasus, and that area. But yeah, there was a basically a genocide inflicted by the Russians uh, throughout the 19th century of that uh, I didn't know much about. I saw it over well over a million people killed and uh, forced removals to other places to spread Russian imperialism. And, you know, these people were never uh, completely human to the Russians, just as the other side saw them as his enemies. But yeah, it's a little known genocide that happened. And while Tolstoy was writing this, I mean, I'm sure he knew more about those events and was strongly against this type of war and imperialism. The uh, common denominator here is probably just that we're all humans and people and uh, haven't evolved too much in our actual supposed humanity in a moral sense, perhaps. It seems to me the big problem is that we remain tribal and we make very little very little attempt to understand people from different tribes. I, I mean, uh, a lot of people in the West regard um, all Muslims as savages. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've certainly, at the university, unbelievably, where I used to work, I've heard people working at the university saying, we need to bomb those guys into the Stone Age, you know. And um, you think, Okay, you might you, you might consider perhaps someone's something like that about Al Qaeda, but you know all the men all, all the men, women, and children. You want to bomb them all into the Stone Age, and uh, and you know one of the to bring it back to Tolstoy, one of the great things he, he does is that he he forces you to see the other side as human beings, human beings who are ev every bit as admirable and have have. Uh, exactly the same feelings or, or perhaps more noble and civilized ones than the Russians do. Yeah, for sure. And that's a lesson that um, 
that our people could definitely use, you know, whether that's kind of the West or however we call it, American, British, and who have had this long <clears throat> series of historical, um, you know, events. And there's a common sentiment of being more civilized or whatever it may be, which I think is uh, highly arguable or incorrect in many, many regards. Try and connect it a little bit to the recent events of this war and terror and even in Afghanistan, which is um, which should be wrapping up this year, I guess. But Adrian was the editor, actually, of this uh, book of short stories, the, the Road Ahead. And I had a contribution, which I explicitly just based on this story, Haji Murad, and it's called Haji Khan, where I modeled a very similar type of plot written from both sides with a uh, sort of Taliban commander, Haji Khan, who's trying to fight against the Americans. And he was on the outs with his, uh, his Taliban leaders. And so I found it very influential, but somehow, you know, just writing that story, but also reading people like Tolstoy is, has forced me also to understand more about humanity and the universal uh, sense of humanity anyway. Definitely, I mean, I've personally evolved from at some point a long time ago when I was in the army or younger and maybe would say throwaway comments or uh, at least tolerate them more uh, like you mentioned. But yeah, I don't have any time for that anymore. I feel like uh, just reading someone like Tolstoy in this case has helped me open up my own humanity. And, uh, so that's one thing reading can do anyway. At the same time that Haji Murad is unquestionably the protagonist of the story, it's named after him, the story revolves around him and this this sort of the, the end of his life. I keep coming back to the, the episode with Shamil where he has captured Haji Murad's family, which really, it doesn't seem to be seen as despicable. It's not a good thing. It's probably not how Haji Murad, you don't imagine that Haji Murad would, would have handled the situation that way if he were in charge. But it's it's acceptable. People aren't up in arms about Shamil's behavior in this regard. It seems sensible, at least to the people, to Shamil's people and, and Haji Murad's people. It sort of demonstrates the kind of sick, the unending nature of violence, like the impossibility of violence to end or resolve violence. And I think, you know, I think of these, you know, violence as this sort of this circular motion that keeps repeating itself. So, you know, Haji Mur Hamzad and Shamil kill the Khans. Haji Murad kills Hamzad, Shamil captures Haji. The Russians attack and the, you know, the Chechens attack and the Russians attack and the Chechens. And it's just this sort of this cycle that keeps going on and on. And, and, and honor, unfortunately, and this is the one of the great tensions, maybe on a larger level, not on a human level, but on an institutional level. One of the great tensions that I've, I see in the work is that it, and it doesn't really present any answer to that, probably because there isn't, depressingly enough. One has the sense that were the tables reversed, the Chechens would be doing this to the Russians. It's just, it's a question of who has the power at that particular time. Russian imperialism is bad because it's Russian, not because it's Russian imperialism, but because that power is being oppressed, you know, is being applied oppressively to the smaller group. But if the smaller group were larger, of course, it would be applying its strength and had in the past, you know, if you go back 500 years ago or 700 or 800 years ago when Europe was just a collection of fiefdoms, you know, it was the Ottomans who were doing this. And, um, and, and so the question, you know, if, if there is a kind of 
idea here, strangely enough, you know, so you have Haji Murad, who is an honorable and decent person who lives by a code. The code allows for violence, but, the, you know, you get the sense that there's that at least there's going to be a kind of consistent, fair, energetic justice animating decisions. And then on the other hand, you've got Emperor Nicholas, who, if he's in a bad mood, he's going to disagree with you, no matter what you say. And if he's in a good mood, maybe he'll agree with you. It depends on the context, uh, the sort of arbitrary uh, application of, of, of state violence. And what's so strange, and I'm really grappling with this in, you know, in, my, in my own life today, uh, you know, one of the reasons this is such a timeless work is that the hypothesis that we could create a good or just framework for governance without depending on good and honorable people is very much in doubt. And we don't even have a very good way of selecting good or honorable people because it seems that most of the people that get selected for leadership in imperial contexts are people that are drawn from the elite who are Prince Voronsovs or, you know, the war minister, his name eludes me again, but these people who are essentially indecent, who are selfish, egotistical, the, and the best you can get is if, if they have some sense of self-awareness and are at, at least want to regard themselves as decent and honorable, even though they're not, even though they're deeply corrupted people who, who move in corrupted uh, circles and are therefore themselves corrupted. So, you know, even a Haji Murad, what's, you know, what's the, what's the end state here? If Haji Murad were to overthrow Shamil, would life then become better and more just, perhaps for 10 or 20 or 30 years? until the end of his life, at which point, chances are, some indecent and corrupt person would have overthrown Haji Murat in his turn, or Haji Murat would have turned on the Russians and started an even bigger war. Yeah, it's, it's just very sort of confusing and sad, which is a terrible place to wrap up, but perhaps the place that Tolstoy wants us to wrap up without any easy answers, save to be, you know, not to be uh, violent or not to go to war. Right. I, I think we're left little choice in wrapping up on that sentiment you expressed because it's truthful. If I could just give you a, a tiny glimmer of hope at the end of the novel, there's those last, it's not quite the last couple of lines. So, so sorry, I'm just, just looking for it. It's almost the first line. Haji Murat has been killed and, and all of his murids have been killed as well. And then we have the nightingales who had fallen silent during the shooting again started trilling, first one close by and then others further off. Um, and that does leave you with a, a, a sort of a sense that na nature goes on and, and there's perhaps there's some, some hope in that. Indeed. I, I think that's another thing from Tolstoy. He shows us all about humanity and the, the worst it could do, but also he... He always has this uh, sense of hope underlying everything. And I think it gave him his own strength and part of his own beliefs, but it's always there. There's always some sort of an optimism, even in a very uh, vague sense. Yeah. And in fact, the very last line right after that is, this was the death I was reminded of by the crushed thistle in the midst of the plowed field, which again, you know, it, okay, it's crushed, but it's still... It's still there. It hasn't, it hasn't been wiped out. Yeah, it's been observed and also yeah. meditated upon and led to this whole recollection, which the novella was, I suppose. So 
There's one last thing I, I feel like maybe I should just throw in, which is kind of uh, strange and maybe not funny, but I could have mentioned, which uh, I was living in Russia uh, years ago. And uh, in St. Petersburg, there's a museum called the Kunstkamera, which I visited. And inside, you could still see the head of the real life Haji Murad. Wow. Yeah, that's right. It hasn't been repatriated despite pleas from uh, his people back home, even today, 150 years later. And so it's a strange connection to the present. And so, yeah, this is real stuff. Great discussion, guys. And um, thanks. Yeah, thank, thank you for the invitation. I, I enjoyed the talk. Our pleasure. I, on top of which, any excuse to read Haji Murad is, uh, you know, uh, is a good one. That's uh, any pretext. So uh, if, if, if you want to reread it again five or 10 years from now, maybe we can do another reprise, a reprise uh, of this episode. Thanks so much for coming on. 